This podcast was produced on the land of the Gadigal people. We acknowledge their traditional ownership of this land and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the Road to Find Out podcast. I'm Juliet Marchant and I'm a guest host this week um, interviewing Rachel Colleen from the law school. Um, I am in my fourth year of law. Um, <laughs> I'm in the penultimate year of my law degree at the University of Sydney and I'm looking forward to having a bit of a chat about law and things surrounding the law as well. So Rachel, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, so, as you said, I'm uh, Dr. Rachel Killeen. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Law here at Sydney. I moved here uh, at the start of July. Before that, I was living in Northern Ireland where I was working at Queen's University Belfast. And I know Juliet from teaching evidence law here in the School of Law. Yeah, so you've recently moved to Sydney, as you just said. Um, what's the biggest difference that you've noticed between USID and the other institutions that you've been at? The size, mostly. So where I was working before Queen's University, we didn't have anything like the number of students that we have here, so that's been an adjustment period. But other than that, you know, the UK and Australia are not so dissimilar. I really like the uh, international student presence here at Sydney. It's really nice to have a diverse class. And uh, the Queen's University students were also wonderful, but I, I love the students here. And I'm not just saying that because you're interviewing me. They're really wonderful and great to teach. Oh, that's good to hear. So there, speaking of students, I guess, there are a few kinds of law students at the beginning of law school. So there are those that are just committed to the corporate world and who think that they'll end up practicing. Um, there are those who think that they're going to change the world as human rights lawyers. And then there are those that don't really have an interest in practicing, but just are there to acquire some analytical skills and such. So why did you choose law school? I fall into the second category. So I was trying to choose between doing something more science-based like psychology. I was uh, accepted for neuroscience, um, but I was also in for law. And I think in the end, it was a mix of um, kind of family pressure to do something professional. Shout out <laughs> to my dad for that one. Uh, but then also, yeah, a belief that potentially this would give me the tools to change the world. I think when I was 17, I probably had aspirations to be the next UN Secretary General or something like that, or some, you know, something human yeah. rights based. And then the process of being a law student and getting to where I am now has been a process of realizing uh, that maybe that's not gonna happen. There's still time, but maybe not. Yeah, so then from that kind of trajectory, how did you find yourself in academia? Kind of accidentally. Um, I used to say when I was at school that my ambition was to just uh, go to university and then never leave. And that is effectively what I managed. I was in education for like 10 years, if you take into account the undergrad, master's, uh, law professional qualification, and then PhD. But the actual catalyst, I suppose, was uh, going to Cambodia after my master's year and doing work in the Khmer Rouge tribunal there. And after that, I was meant to come back and start one of these corporate traineeships that you mentioned and was a bit disenchanted with all of that and a little bit lost, I guess. And then I went to a seminar by the person that turned out to be my for, uh, future PhD supervisor. And he was talking about transitional justice and he was talking about theorizing some of the things that I had seen in practice in Cambodia. And I got chatting to him and he just asked, have you ever thought about doing a PhD? And I kind of said, well, yeah, but I don't, I don't have the money. Like that seemed like something that rich people do. 
so he told me about scholarships and then it was just an impulse choice I didn't want to do my traineeship I didn't want to be in Scotland anymore I just wanted to change and uh, I just jumped at the chance to do something different and then continue to base my life on that one experience in Cambodia pretty much ever since. Oh, that's so cool. And um, would you consider that academic in particular, like mentor or academic inspiration that's kind of guided your interests um, and your current work? So yeah, definitely a shout out to Kieran McAvoy, who's still at Queen's. He was really responsible for lighting the spark of interest within me in academic life and really in uh, providing me with that crucial mentorship in the first few years. But also my other uh, PhD supervisor Anne-Marie McAlinden has been a real force of nature for me so she is just an incredibly generous uh, scholar and person and she provided a lot of guidance and how to actually become an academic and how to uh, you know work out how to collaborate with people how to build a research agenda for yourself and she's just incredibly generous with her time and advice so between the two of them I've, and many more mentors I have to say Queen's was a wonderful supportive environment uh, no one gets to where they are alone, and uh, but those were two very important voices for me. Oh, cool. And just before, you mentioned as well that you lived and worked in Cambodia for a period of time. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and what brought you to Cambodia? Yeah, so again, uh, much of my life has been just a series of uh, impulse decisions. So I was at the end of my international law master's and uh, at Leiden University, and there was a lot of pressure not necessarily pressure but guidance to do some form of internship as a way of trying to work out what kind of law you might want to do and in the Netherlands doing that kind of thing working for free which is what internships are uh, most of the time rightly or wrongly probably wrongly uh, that was very expensive in the Netherlands but I had a position offered to me from the Cambodian courts and I thought well if I can save up enough money for six months I can live in Cambodia more cheaply so it wasn't any like loftier goal than that I just wanted to see somewhere new where I could afford to live for a while and work for free but I'm so glad that it worked out that way because it was such a transformative experience so I was in the Khmer Rouge tribunal in the chamber which was considering the victims uh, appeals so victims have the ability to participate in the Khmer Rouge tribunal because it's a civil based system and they had just had the decision that decided who was going to be recognized as a victim and who was not so at the time that I got there they were really grappling with what it means to recognize uh, victimhood in a criminal trial and what it means in an international criminal trial. So it just it was just a fascinating time to be there. Cambodia itself is a fascinating place for, you know, a white girl from Scotland. And I made loads of really wonderful friends from all around the world and, you know, got to do some work that I really believed in at the time and felt was really meaningful. Uh, so you, you can't put a price on that. So although, uh, yeah, I was exploited, I guess, by the UN for my free labor it transformed my life, so fair enough. Oh, that's so cool and very fascinating. Um, and a lot of your work centers around that concept of victimhood that you were just talking about before. So what do you actually mean by victimhood? And where did that interest stem from as well? I suppose it depends on the context in which you're talking. So one of the things that came up at the Khmer Rouge Tribunal was, do we have a broad understanding of victimhood or a more narrow legalistic understanding? So. If you're looking at it through a law prism, you might say, well, a victim is someone that's been impacted by this particular crime, by this particular person. There needs to be that nexus there for you know, legal certainty. In Cambodia, when you're talking about genocide, how could you possibly differentiate who has been directly impacted by that particular person's crime, particularly when we're talking about senior leaders of government, not you know, foot soldiers? So one of the conversations that I was part of when I was out in Cambodia was this notion of collective victimhood, where 
you're a victim by virtue of having lived through a particular time because the the situation was such that you were exposed to violence of some form or deprivation of some form every day regardless uh, of where you were so it depends and so constructing victimhood and understanding who is a victim but also who is recognized for their victimhood because those are two separate things is a is a big part of my work Okay, cool. And then you're a scholar from the global north, obviously. Um, and have you found that that's posed any challenges to your work um, in Cambodia or studying genocide and atrocity more broadly? It's a it's a challenge and it's a privilege, obviously. Um, the ability to go and study another place is not always something a Global South scholar is able to do. So Global South folks can find themselves the subject of research without being able to uh, participate in knowledge uh, contribution themselves and that's that's a problem so as I've grown older I've become more conscious of that of the power dynamics of being a global north woman who travels to a developing country because uh, Cambodia is still a low to middle income country and essentially extracts information from that place to build a career so you gotta you gotta reflect on that um, and I've tried to become better over time at collaborating with Cambodians on an equal footing, trying to uh, ensure that they have opportunities to publish as well and are able to own their own stories. So I, I still don't get it right all the time, but that's certainly been a journey. So that's that's the kind of privilege aspect of it uh, and just the access to resources that we have. The challenge is obviously, you know, when you go to a, a new place, you can do your best to try and culturally acclimatize and learn customs and try and even learn the language if you can. Um, it doesn't mean that you understand probably more than like 10% of any social interaction that's going on in a culture that's fundamentally different to yours. So trying to do research in Cambodia was also a real learning experience about how little one can know another, um, which is something we were talking about in evidence class yeah. just yesterday. Um, and also working across language barriers. So the project that I'm involved in at the moment is about how human dignity is understood in Cambodia. And um, so we're working closely with our Cambodian counterparts, Borovin Tan and uh, Kim San Soy, and they're, you know, having to explain across the language barrier to the English speaking collaborators how the data is forming and what kind of themes are coming out. But we can only know it through their translation. We cannot understand like the source material ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I find that really fascinating, but also an ongoing challenge in, in doing this kind of work. Yeah, and I'm sure it would be so difficult as well because like the jurisdictions are so different and the nature of the legal system over there is probably so distinct from what we're used to in like more westernized nations um but that's so interesting wow so um in addition to that there are often ethical debates about the public presentation of like human remains and that sort of thing um but in Cambodia particularly at things like the Chung Ek Memorial um the displays of skulls and bones are like quite prevalent mm -hmm. um so do you like think that people actually need to see these physical signs of atrocity in order to empathize with victims of such heinous events um, and like, how is that even considered in the Cambodian context? I mean, it's not culturally appropriate uh, to do this. It's so this it's something that sits at the intersection of um, kind of politics, social norms, cultural norms. So the the gathering of bones that happened in Cambodia started in the 80s. And this gathering of bones to particular places was a way of evidencing atrocity. And it was part of a political narrative that was being constructed at the time about the nature of the Khmer Rouge regime. In normal circumstances, it's totally inappropriate in Buddhist culture to have bones on display, as it would be in 
many cultures. You could never imagine us doing that here, gathering bones mm. together in this way. But for Buddhists, you're also meant to have a cremation in order to release the spirits of the folks that have died. So you're essentially trapping these spirits by gathering their bones in this way and displaying them. So there's all these tensions around it. But there's also for survivors a real need for uh, evidence to not be destroyed so that they can you know, be sure in their minds that people will not forget what happened to them or try and deny what happened to them. So even though in kind of normal circumstances, you might expect like real cultural pushback for this kind of display, which, you know, can feel quite dehumanizing when you look at it just to see a bunch of uh, shin bones collected together. You don't know who these individual people were, but they were individual people who were murdered. Um, but then you have, yeah, an understanding that we are dealing with the aftermath of atrocity and we want to ensure that that is recognized and that people don't get to turn away from the reality of what happened. Yeah, because speaking about evidence, I guess, um, how do you kind of like approach that issue when like you're looking at evidence that is so kind of like associated with such awful atrocities and such awful events? Like, how do you as a scholar kind of decide what is and what isn't um, like meaningful to present to the public? I don't know the answer to that. I think it's so shaped by the specificities of, of the um, of the place and the, the survivor's wishes, ideally, although it's not normally or always the survivors that get to decide what's on display. So another example in the Cambodian context is in Tulslang, the Genocide Memorial Museum. They display the, the pictures that were taken by the Khmer Rouge uh, cadres when they were bringing people into Tulslang. So these are pictures that are taken of people who will shortly be tortured and ultimately murdered. And so many of them are in a state of fear or defiance or just despair you can see in their faces but they're also um, kind of anonymized some of them we know who they are many of them people we don't know who they are or maybe one person somewhere knows who they are so there's ethical questions about that as well like how we you know again anonymize these people and reduce them to this one specific terrible moment in their in their lives which are shortly to end which completely collapses the fact that they had a rich diverse life up until that point some of them some of them are just children I should say mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know what the ethics are of that I think it's powerful when I'm, I'm there I you know contemplate the regime in a different way and it, it makes it much more real when you're confronted with people's eyes looking out at you but I don't know if I was someone who ended my life that way would I want to be immortalized in that particular way we can never ask them mm -hmm. and that raises kind of ethical questions too so I don't, I don't really know but it's something that is just uh, navigated in every place where atrocity happens yeah and moving on to a completely different form of evidence I sure. guess um, aside from more classical legal scholarship you also draw on a lot of kind of more um, like either popular culture or literary scho um, scholarship and that type of thing so for instance in one of your papers you refer to like Sontags regarding the pain of others and some of Judith Butler's works so what do you think the value of interdisciplinary methods is in legal research? I, I mean, I, I don't think you can overstate the value. I think it helps us to understand law as something that's not decontextualized and objective, but rather something that is socially constructed and understood. Uh, you know, in Sontag, you know, we're using the pain of others. We're thinking about looking at the pain of others. That's not something that we can explore purely through a legal prism. We reach the, the limits of what law can describe and capture. So in, when you reach those limits, you, you have to look elsewhere 
I find like, you know, anthropology literature, sociology literature, all of this has helped me become a better critic of law and a better critical engager with law. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we don't yet have as much support for interdisciplinary research as we should. It can still make it harder to get funding and harder to get papers published. But I, I don't think that should be the case because I think we are endlessly enriched by engaging with scholarship from other disciplines. Yeah. Okay, cool. And your study of victimhood is not limited to Cambodia. Like you have so many publications, you're very prolific. Um, but it ex extends across a number of different subject areas, one of those being environmental harm. So where did that interest come from? Because it's quite different from what your other works have been focusing on. It is different, but it did come from the same source. So when I was in Cambodia, I became aware as, as anyone that knows about Cambodia becomes aware of the impact of the US's uh, Vietnam War on the country, in particular the use of Agent Orange and uh, carpet bombing tactics, uh, not only on the human beings who suffered this, but the environment that suffered this. So the long-term impacts on soil, um, the craters that exist in Cambodia that did not used to be there, ponds that are created out of uh, mining, but um, also the way that the transition from violence uh, to a kind of like uh, alleged democracy is one that has been accompanied by significant environmental harm. So that got me thinking just about uh, what harms we see and what we don't. So there's never been any recognition of the fact that ecocide was perpetrated in Cambodia, no legal recognition anyway. Uh, but also that a transition from conflict brings its own environmental costs and we don't necessarily think about that in the way that we talk about transitional justice. We tend to focus on um, civil and political violence and particular forms of violence without having that broader context of what the environment has experienced and what it might mean to recover from conflict in an environmentally sustainable way. So that was what sparked my interest. And then I just, you know, I was thinking about ecocide at the time that the ecocide campaign was gaining steam for for probably the first time, although it's a long-standing campaign. In fact, Ecocide was first talked about in the aftermath of the Vietnam War to find a way to talk about Agent Orange. Um, it's kind of struggled to gain uh, like popular support, I suppose. And then over the last couple of years, I've really seen the conversation shift as we all become more aware of, you know, the environmental crisis that is our, our lived reality. And obviously, environmental harm that happens during conflict is only one tiny piece like obviously the, the greatest destroyer of the planet is you know capitalism <laughs> but conflict also does play an environmental harmful role it's not one that we used to talk about much we talk about much more now so that, that was where that came from so it started life in Cambodia and then grew broader as I thought more about my my own life and and how these environmental challenges all kind of link up with each other I guess right and what do you actually consider ecocide to be like what does that mean uh, so there's lots of different definitions. Um, the most popular one is the Stop Ecocide's uh, legal expert definition. Um, but I, I would, you know, I, I can't memorize it off the top of my head. I guess I understand it. If you take it back to its roots, it's the destruction of our home. So I would think of it as being anything that's uh, a large scale or widespread or severe destruction of an environment that uh, prohibits its ability to regenerate naturally. Uh, and so examples might be the oil spill in the Niger Delta, for example, the Agent Orange example that I uh, referenced before, the destruction of the Amazon, things like that. They don't necessarily be, need to be on a huge scale. Uh, I also consider ecocide to be, you know, the destruction of an ecosystem that was like, you know, unique in some way. 
so anything that, that destroys our um, planet to the extent that it can't recover by itself, I guess. Right. Is the non-legal response to that question. (laughs) No, very fair, very valid. Um, And as a legal scholar, I'm sure you've come up against a number of opponents who are sceptical about the power of law in addressing issues, particularly issues to do with environmental destruction. Um, So how have you responded to these claims? Or do you also, like, agree that law is, like, necessarily kind of limited in its capacity to respond to such issues? I 100% agree with that. Uh, So I try to... I try to exist in a space where I'm pro a new crime of ecocide, for example, and I'm pro uh, rights for nature as well, which is something I've only just started writing about. But I don't think the law, and I particularly don't think criminal law is ever going to be a meaningful response to a challenge of the scale of an environmental crisis. Like we need systemic change at a very fundamental level if if we're going to have any hopes of a future on this planet. And the law is not going to bring that. The law has never posed a meaningful solution to any of our social ills really but what it does do is set the standards for behavior and that can have declarative and expressive impacts even if it doesn't always fulfill its goals of deterrence or you know justice so if you say you know ecocide is a crime what you're saying is you know the destruction of our planet is severe enough for us to prosecute and penalize people for it and I even though we have environmental laws they're, they're rarely enforced in the way they should be. Environmental protection agencies are fundamentally under-resourced. And, you know, so those are two sides of the same coin. Like, we can introduce new laws, but we also need to think about creating the enforcement strategies that will actually work. So all of that to say, I think law can play a role, but it can only ever be one piece in a jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah no, lawyers, are, lawyers are not known for humility, so I think we can <laughs> often think that more law is the answer to everything, and mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's literally not. Yeah, no, very, very true. Um, And as you've kind of mentioned as well in your comments, um, the environmental destruction doesn't just affect human life, but the law is famously quiet on its recognition of non-human animals, for instance, as victims um, of environmental atrocity. So how do we understand the concept of victimhood, I guess, in the broader context of environmental atrocity, where not all of the victims are necessarily human? Yeah, I mean, we... The, the law, as we understand it, is not the only way of thinking about harm. So, you know, for indigenous folks around the world, uh, their cosmologies have long understood that harm can be something experienced by a human and other than human entities. I, I don't think it's we can think of the rights for nature movement as something that's quite new, like recognizing the, the harms that we perpetrate against uh, other than human entities or the concept of giving them legal rights. We think of that as, as a kind of new development. But it's, it's not. It's only new for a kind of Western legalistic understanding of, of what a person is or who should have rights. So I think we can learn lessons from the voices that we have long marginalized uh, and refused to listen to. And by platforming other cosmologies and ways of thinking about the world, we can really open our minds to how we are in relationship not only with other human beings, but other than human entities. So there's plenty, plenty guidance on how that might be achieved. The challenge is, you know, for indigenous folks, for example, if we were to be learning lessons from from folks that have thought about relationality with the other than human world, is then are we trying to transplant that into a Western legal system, which is not something that they created or envisioned? So challenges arise around that. Like, what does it actually mean for me to say that a river is a legal person, for example? Mm -hmm. Like, who represents them? What does reparation mean in that context? How are they 
advocating for themselves in a courtroom. It raises like practical challenges because we're trying to take a concept and move it into a space that wasn't necessarily fit for it. But we have done this before. Like we have expanded our understanding of who is a person many times, you know, in the context of slavery, in the context of women, in the context mm -hmm. of children. Uh, so it's it's a logical next step, I think, to to look beyond ourselves in this way. And as I say, there's there's plenty of guidance to be had. Yeah. And in one of your papers, Mass Violence, Environmental Harm and the Limits of Transitional Justice, which you co-wrote with Lauren Dempster from Queen's, um, you argue that traditional approaches to transitional justice practice not only fail to meaningfully respond to atrocity-related environmental harm, but actually further facilitate environmental harms. So what do you mean by this? Well, it, it speaks to what I was saying about Cambodia earlier, that when we have the end of a conflict and a transition to a liberal democracy, it's not that liberal democracy is, is inherently environmentally damaging, but what accompanies that is the introduction of liberal market economies and nowadays uh, neoliberal market economies. And that is accompanied by extractive policies, uh, financiered capitalism, uh, you know, many of the forces that uh, understand the natural world to be a resource for exploitation are suddenly able to enter a space where previously they may not have been able to because there was an ongoing conflict in the area. So unfortunately, often, you know, we see this in Latin America, we saw it in Cambodia, we see it in many different jurisdictions. When, when political violence ends, new forms of violence, economic violence, environmental violence can fill in that space. So that was why we were trying to, we were trying to think through, are there ways to transition out of conflict that already lays the groundwork to prevent that kind of harm? Is that possible in the sense of a global regime? Or, you know, again, do we return to the idea that we need systemic change if we're actually going to meaningfully protect our planet yeah no that's very very true cool so Rachel you're my seminar leader so I kind of have a bit of an idea already as to how you teach but what are your main goals when you're teaching law students like what do you aim to impart so one of the challenging things about teaching law I think is that it's slightly more prescribed than some courses so we were talking at the start um, before we came on the mics about the difference between you know more arts-based or social science-based degrees where you can talk a lot about different theories and different approaches to things and sometimes in the law we're just having to impart this is the legal regime this is how you approach it this is how you would apply it because that's part of what we're doing we're training professionals uh, but we're not only training professionals and I think if all we did was taught a bunch of law we've kind of failed because you will ultimately learn the law through practice if that's what you choose to do. So what I try to do when I have the space to do so is also uh, encourage students to think critically not about uh, what the law is but whether it should be the way that it is and try and uh, to place it in the context of the policies that are behind law because law is essentially policy being implemented um, and what the unintended consequences might be of that law. So is this something that's going to particularly harm marginalised people? Is this law uh, cognizant of power structures and power differentials or is it not? Uh, how is this playing out? And so in evidence law, that often comes up in the context of fair trial rights, uh, particularly if we're dealing with something sensitive. Uh, you know, we've been recently, I've been teaching uh, child sexual abuse, which is heavy stuff. So there's a kind of instinctive response that we want perpetrators of child sexual abuse to to suffer or to pay for what they did. But we do still want to have a legal system that is grounded in the rights of an individual not to have their liberty taken from them if they've not done something, uh, for them to have certain procedural rights and protections. We still 
I think hopefully you still want to live in that world because essentially fair trial rights are all that stands between you and um, untapped state power to intervene in your life. So having those kinds of nuanced conversations is sometimes tricky to fit in because we have so much content to get through, but where, where we can do that, I think to give students that ability to critically reflect on their own profession is, is what I would like to impart. Cool. And if there was one thing that you could change about the way that law is taught at universities, um, what do you think that would be? Oh, man, I would I would liberalize it. Right. I, I, I think this prioritization of learning like what the law is and how it applies is, is a misstep because we do these professional qualifications anyway afterwards. So I would do way more of the critical stuff and a bit less of the substantive. Obviously, there's some substantive things that we just need to teach but I think the balance can sometimes fall a little bit too heavily on just learning the law you were telling me about how it is at Sydney when you also do a BA alongside it I think that's wonderful the students that I was teaching back in Queens they were doing a three-year undergrad law degree and it just didn't create enough space I think for them to really grow as as thinkers so I think this system is better um but I, I still think within a law degree we can create a little bit more space for that kind of uh, bigger picture thinking yeah, no, for sure. Um, my little arts heart is like singing right now. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I miss classroom debates. Um, but uh, also going back to a few of the stereotypes of the law students that we were talking about way at the beginning of the interview, um, a lot of law students can be quite confident in their demeanour um, or articulate or even like unwilling to accept when they're wrong. Um, so what's it like teaching the kind of like stereotypical law student and is that a common kind of characteristic of law students even outside of Australia or outside of Sydney specifically? Well I only teach law students so I don't know what other students are like. (laughs) Um, I certainly enjoy teaching articulate confident folks and I don't mind that sometimes they don't really want to admit that they might be wrong about something. Um, they'll learn that soon enough, you know. Um, and young people can be very confident in their in their views. Uh, so I think it's fun. I actually, I don't think the stereotype is always true. Um, you know, there's as many types of law student as there are law student. And I'm not sure if the classroom always creates enough space for those that might have a different approach to, to have their voice heard as well, because it can be hard for those that are a bit shyer. Um, or you know, are international and don't feel so confident in their English to, to find space. So that's one of the challenges of being a teacher, I suppose, is creating space for, for folks to express themselves when it doesn't come so easily. Uh, so I would say that it's uh, incredibly rewarding to teach the stereotype if the stereotype exists, but uh, what's more rewarding is having a diverse classroom of interesting individuals. Cool, and what was your favorite thing that you studied when you were at law school? Um, two things, international criminal law, obviously, because I built a whole career off it. Um, and then the international law of the sea. So I cannot remember the name of my incredible professor, but maybe I'll look her up so you can include her in the show notes or something. But she designed a course where we all represented a different country. And then we engaged in these like negotiations using the international law of the sea. And like, it was the nerdiest fun ever. And then we, you know, just wrote little essays about it and stuff. So um, maybe that's another thing that we have lost a little bit in the law classroom is the more maybe that's not fair shout out to my colleagues that are doing creative things uh, <laughs> but it's nice to be able to learn in ways that aren't just uh, the lecture and the small group 
discussion or whatever it was fun yeah. to do something creative so uh, I remember her very fondly even if I can't remember her name right now <laughs> oh no that sounds like such a cool class oh my gosh I'm jealous so moving on to something that's I guess a little bit lighter to try and like end it on a lighter note um what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received <laughs> big question hey yeah what's the best piece of advice I've ever received uh, I think probably just to be kind. I think I think that's the mantra I return to the most. I don't always pull it off. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, I don't I don't know if anyone does. Maybe someone does, but I think I could give you some like academic advice. I've certainly received loads of excellent academic advice. But in terms of like what will make your life better, I don't think there's a a better piece of advice than to try and be kind to people. Oh, and so other nice. than people. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a very nice response. It's so lovely. Um, and would you impart any, like, speaking of academic advice, I guess, would you impart any specific academic advice to other students, whether in the law school or outside of the law school? Oh, man, so much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't wait till the end to revise. <laughs> uh, don't give in to the mass hysteria that can come from group chat. Um, you know, mm. we all fall into that trap if there's a deadline on the horizon or something, um, and it's it's profoundly unhelpful. Uh, get enough sleep, go outside, look at the sun. Um, you know, keep a sense of perspective that even if you even if the worst happened and you completely fucked up your degree, it doesn't make you a bad person and it doesn't mean that your life is over. So I think a healthy healthy dose of perspective, a healthy dose of self care, and a little bit of preparation is, makes everyone's life a bit better. Cool. All great advice. Um, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been such a pleasure being able to speak a bit outside of what you teach me in the evidence course. Um, <laughs> not that evidence isn't great already, but um, no, you have such interesting interests and I'm sure that the students will also love to hear about it. Thank you, Juliet. No, the pleasure was mine. Mm -hmm.